This is Dropped Among This Crowd, a podcast that dives into the music and community of improvisational progressive rock bands on Freeza Gate. Each week will feature a rotating schedule of insightful full show recaps, interviews with fellow Umphreaks, members of Team UM, as well as other musicians who have been inspired by and or played with the band. This is your place for all the latest news and happenings within the world of Umphreaks, helping keep you informed on what's been recently released or where you can catch the next show. I'm your host, Sarah Jaginiak. Thanks for joining me as we dive in. Are you prepared for what comes next? Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining me for this week of Dropped Among This Crowd. I hope that you were able to check out last week's episode where I chatted all about what Umphreys played during their two sets at Suwanee Rising at the Spirit of Suwanee Music Park in Live Oak, Florida on April 10th. There is a link in the show notes where you can give that a listen if you missed it. That show is also available to re-listen to on Nugs and UM Live, and you'll find a link for those in the show notes as well. Looking for a new way to stream your music or listen to your favorite podcasts? Check out this exclusive offer for DATC listeners and Conduit subscribers. Head to getamazonmusic.com slash dropped among this crowd to receive a 90-day free trial of Amazon Music. That's getamazonmusic.com slash D-R-O-P-P-E-D-A-M-O-N-G-T-H-I-S-C-R-O-W-D to get a 90-day free trial and unlimited access to 70 million songs Always ad-free with unlimited skips on Amazon Music. This offer is only good until May 24th. Before we get into this week's very special episode, I quick wanted to shout out Annie Bayless for doing the two-week Body Love Boot Camp she has going on right now. I actually just finished a workout with her online before I popped into my studio to record this episode. And I will tell you, she is no joke. She has been kicking my ass the last four days, and I am so tired at the end of the day from working out with her. But she is phenomenal and inspiring and is really helping me get my workouts in in the morning, which I've really gotten off of doing uh, during COVID and the kids not having to be anywhere or anything really. So it's been really great to get back into that. And being with her every morning is super motivational. And of course, everyone else that pops in live is really awesome. And also shout out to Annie and Mary Fox Stasek, um, doing the 100 day for positive change challenge again. If you're joining along with the challenge, um, hell yes. Um, I think today I'm recording this is day four. Um, so hell yes, we got a little bit of ways to go, but we can do this. And if you're not joining, I think you should. It's life changing and it's really awesome to just really focus on some positive things in your life for 100 days and the difference that it makes. Um, 
I actually did an episode last year with Mary and Annie, and we talked about the 100-day challenge. Um, I can't think of the number off the top of my head, but there is a link in the show notes where you can find the video uh, and the audio, and we talk more about what it's like doing the 100-day challenge, and they talk about the reason why they even started doing it. Um, It's really awesome. It's really inspirational, um, and I suggest you check it out. Like I said, this week is a very special episode. The first reason is because it's announcing this month and next month's issue of Conduit Magazine. If you follow on social media, I'm sure you saw the post about what's in store for you guys. But on the cover and stuffed inside the pages for this month and next month, it's all about... Ali Baba's tahini. Wait until you see what is inside these stacked issues. They were so full of content that Leah and I decided to make it into two issues. The story is just, there's so much to it. There was so much content for us to go through. We have been working so hard on this. And we wanted to give the history of ABT the justice that it deserves. So we decided to break it up into two issues. The first one will take us on the history of ABT up to their Rockstars and Lawnmowers album. Inside, you'll find also a little meet each person in the band slash crew segment, a copy of an article that Joel wrote about ABT back in 1998. Yeah, you heard that right. That is quite a gem. Wait until you read that one. A look at all of the ABT albums, a recipe from Carl, and so much more, and the pictures. (laughs) Just you wait until you see the pictures. They're so great. This issue is hitting the streets this coming Friday, April 30th, if you're listening to this when it airs. And you can either purchase the digital version or the print version. There is a link in the show notes. The print version is also available on the DATC Etsy store. Search among this crowd. If you're a subscriber, you don't need to do anything. You'll receive yours in whatever format that you chose when it is released. And part two will be coming your way at the end of May. There will also be an option to pre-order next month's issue when you snag this one so you don't miss the conclusion of the ABT story. So keep your eyes peeled for more about that. And if you're listening and you're local to the South Bend area, check out Brass Eye, a bar that had to pivot in 2020 and now operates as a liquor store. That place is owned and operated by former ABT manager Brian Williams. You'll learn a little bit more about him inside the pages of both of these issues. And there are a few copies of this month's and next month's 
uh, issue at his place. So if you're local, uh, grab one from there and support his business. And stay tuned to the social media pages as well. Um, We'll keep you updated if there are any other local places that will be having these available. The other reason that this episode is special, I am very excited to bring you my chat with Jake Sinegar. Yes! Surprise! I didn't post on anything and say that Jake and I had chatted. I'm very excited to bring you guys this one. Jake and I caught up a little bit uh, about two weeks ago, and he was offering his pieces of the ABT story for the upcoming Conduit issues. But after we got rolling with our conversation of course, with any conversation that someone would have with Jake. There's just so many great stories and tidbits that I wanted the listeners to check out what Jake had to say, too. And if reading is more your thing, you'll find our chat nestled inside the pages of May's Conduit Issue. Jake talks a little bit about the boondock build in the top of our chat. That event happened on April 23rd after this episode was finished. So you can find a full recap of that in next week's episode. Jake also talks about the benefits of being from a small town and how it helps him artistically. He takes us inside his songwriting and recording process. Jake also talks about what it's like working with such incredible songwriters like Carl Engelman and Brendan Bayless. We of course go on a little stroll down memory lane and down the timeline of ABT. That 2017 show at Vegetable Buddies that I've talked about pretty often here on the podcast and a whole bunch more. You guys are really just going to love this chat, of course. Shout out to Jake for taking the time to relive the past and chat with me. It was such a pleasure hearing you tell all of these really great stories and hearing so much more about ABT. It's been really awesome doing this project and diving so much more into their music and their history and their friendship with Umphreys and how it all just came together. It's been so awesome and such a gift to be able to have the conversations that I've had. Um, I spoke to Steve Crojo, I spoke to Brian Williams, and of course I spoke to Jake. and and talk to Carl and and so it was such a gift to be able to talk to all of them too and and hear their stories and it was pretty funny to hear some of the same stories from the different points of view um so I thank you to Jake for taking the time and I want to say thank you to everybody else in the ABT camp band you know circle um that has just been really gracious and helpful and willing to 
take the time and, and tell the stories. Um, if you're wanting more from the ABT guys, check out the other episodes of the podcast that feature my conversations with them. Uh, drummer Steve Crojo is episode 83. Bass player Carl Engelman is episode 106. Keyboard player Justin Powell is episode 95. And of course, I have to mention my two episodes with Boondock Studio Manager Jim Leap way, 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 way back on episode one, my first ever interview, (laughs) and also in episode 108. He gives a tour of Boondock in the video for episode 108. So make sure you check that out on the show's YouTube page. If you haven't, it's so awesome to get a tour of that incredible space. There is a link in the show notes for that and also where you can give a listen to my chats with the other guys in ABT. Do you have a small business that makes shirts? pins, jewelry, stickers, prints, or sells other interesting products or art that you think peeps would love to get their hands on? Is your band looking to get some attention from fellow music-loving umfreaks? Maybe you provide an awesome service that could make folks' lives better or easier and want some like-minded clientele? Or perhaps you're looking to hire some cool people to work with. Let Dropped Among This Crowd and Conduit Magazine help you get the word out. With ad space in monthly issues of Conduit, commercial spots here on the podcast, and more, Dropped Among This Crowd and Conduit can help you reach tons of fellow umfreaks, musicians, and other kind folks looking to purchase from you work with you, and support their fellow ump family. Email dropped at gmail.com if you're interested in chatting more about how we can help you and the amazing ad packages we offer. So here is my chat with Jake. Yeah, it, um, well, since this whole thing started, the pandemic, um, Kevin Browning and I have been kind of throwing back some ideas um, how to make a streaming um, event quite different from your normal run-of-the-mill sort of performance online or, or hangout sort of material online. Doing an actual um, from ground up evolution of a song in real time. So we were kind of going to like the furthest degree of like how multi-layered could we get this and and make it cool for the for the person watching because it's it could be super educational on top of cracking the code of how you know i particularly go about manifesting an idea to have something now physical like a physical recording so that's a it's a real special process to go through from manifesting the idea and 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 then layering it piece by piece as like it was orchestrated in real time and and you can see me do mistakes and back up the take and punch in 
you know, do all these literal things kind of in the moment to shape the song to the final process. So how, how much, like how much, I guess you could say like bones in a way, cause it's kind of how like I envision like an article or a, a song or something would have like bones of it. How much of that are you going to have going into this? Or are you just going to come into it completely blank slated? It could go really either or. I'm thinking going more blank slate because I do a lot of that because I have a, 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 a vortex to go to to create art. So the studio here is totally separate from where I live. So a lot of times I'll just drive 25 minutes north up here to the studio. And in that time is when I, you know, took, we took the kids to school, we got them out. And then now I can all of a sudden sort of shift into artist mode from being like in total three kid dad mode, you know? Yeah. So a lot of times just in the car, I'll, I'll, I'll have nothing going on. I'll just be listening to the road underneath me and manifesting a tempo, maybe a, a certain key signature. Um, am I feeling odd meter, like a seven, eight? Or is it, does it feel like four, four? So I just kind of just be driving along as if I was taking a stroll, but I'm driving up to the studio. And then as soon as I get here, I'll usually pick up the guitar and sort of manifest like, like the main riff of something. Once I get that main riff, like feeling like that's the hook of the song, I'm trying to find a hook that I can like write sections around, almost add to, here's where the Legos come into a uh, feature. When you have a great riff, like uh you know, highway to hell, da, 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 da. you know, it's like, well, you got to have a chorus now. I'm on the highway to hell. Da, da. So that that's when the, that idea comes on. You've got a great block or Lego of, of, a, of a great riff. And then we start adding great riffs also to it. So that's where the, the culmination starts. Now, <laughs> the recording process will be like this. I'll set, I'll find the tempo of the song and I'll lay down a click track to the tape machine. Okay. So I just run it through, lay a click track for about five minutes. Okay. And I'll probably have that laid down first. Okay. Now I'll, I'll, I'll play a, a scratch guitar track over that click track. So I create basically the form of the song with the guitar running throughout. So there's nothing going on but the guitar and the click track. So this is basically the blueprint of the song. So now I can play to this, this like, like pictured puzzle of mm -hmm. a song that's just a scratch guitar track running through. So now I can play drums over that. This is where the process starts. Now, now I can play all the accents of that guitar take. If there's like, if I'm pushing sections or pulling back or I have a drum fill, I'm going into a chorus. That's when the drum track can can mirror that that scratch guitar track, and then we just build up from there: bass, drums, guitar, keyboard, vocals. You know, mixing. It's so interesting. And then I have been talking to everybody this week and looking at pictures, and the subject of the Lego sessions came up from way back in the day, and now with the boondock build coming up and what you were just talking about. So I guess we can kind of like jump ahead it's on the same subject. So do you recall the Lego sessions back in the day with Khalil and Joel oh, and yeah. Andy? And we, we, yes, we did this in Buchanan, Michigan at um, a guy named Gene Ort, O-R-T. 
and I've known Gene since I was, you know, two years old, family friend. And, he, and he's an amazing, accomplished composer, uh, studio engineer. So he had given me some free time at his studio, beautiful, huge studio, amazing console. And my dad had did some amazing drywall work in the great room, like where we recorded. It looked like Abbey Road style um, oh. um, great room. This studio is amazing, right? Wow. And uh, so my dad did all these crazy, all the crazy uh, drywall in the studio. And then he was like, I'll give Jake a, 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 some free time. So I was like, okay. I, this free time was coming up at Gene Ord's studio. And I wrote like five or six songs and charted them out. And then got together with Khalil and Krojo because we weren't really a, like a, a band that was practicing at the time. I was just like, okay, I'm in town. Joel's in town. And it happened to be Joel's birthday, uh, January 12th, when we recorded that. Okay. Which is kind of cool. So Joel happened to be in town for something. And I was like, Joel, you can be in Alibaba's Tahini too. So since you're here, bring your roads and your, your, and your rolling keyboard. And Andy was in town too. He, he drove in from Chicago. So it was more than just Alibaba's Tahini. It had Joel and Andy involved also with Crojo and Khalil. So we just literally sat up in this huge room, put baffles around Andy. Uh, Joel was going direct. So we were all like in a circle in this big room. And all of us had the charts that I'd made, you know, just simple charts like Dump City was on there. I think uh, Visions um, and a few other bi little biscuits that we never turned into like actual live tunes. But that was a great session. I remember just having a, a blast with. And we did that that whole session in like a six hour time and mixed it all in one day. So it was like we basically recorded everything live and then mixed it that day and walked away with the CD. And that's kind of what we were left with. <laughs> but it was a special day. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody speaks very highly of, of that session. Is there, do you have a recording of it? Yeah, I do. What I should do is remaster it and get it all up to level, you know, because I think, I, you know, like usually when you get a, a, a disc from the studio, it's not mastered properly for like, say Spotify or something like that. So you have to right. master it the limiting where it should be put right. the shelf on the music where it goes like this <laughs> let's talk about you working with such great songwriters like carl and brendan so what's that been like for you oh it's great it's the beauty about writing with different uh brains and different personalities is their method of songwriting is completely different so there's a scientific way that you could look at say brendan and carl and they're just like totally different animals you know like the way they approach just like as, as the way i write songs so once you understand like the way someone writes and that takes years to kind of figure out there, there's a code that you have to crack in order to become useful inside say their song world okay mm -hmm. And that goes with the stuff that I write for the band and like the stuff that Bayless writes. It's like you have to all of a sudden become an arranger of something that already exists. OK, so how can we take this simple folky song that um, Carl Engelman has and turn it into into something more than the sum of its parts? That's kind of when I come in and act as like sort of a musical producer on top of like 
when it comes to actually engineering the song and recording it, turning into like the real like sonic producer also. So I, li- I love that that algorithm of being a musical producer and a sonic producer. So in the middle, we got this great song that Carl had created. But how, how do we make it special for, for the listener, for like the fan base out there? Instead of it just kind of being a, uh, a simple, you know, acoustic, folky styled tune, maybe we should rock it up and make it faster. Or maybe we should slow it down and add strings, you know, stuff like that. It adds a different soul to the song when you start to add other uh, beautiful minds to a great piece of music. Mm-hmm. Are there any ABT songs that you tried to bring to Umphreys and it just didn't work? You think? Um, we tried Lepidoptera, which is off the uh, Limbo Boots record. First song off there i remember doing that like way back it just wasn't working i don't think i felt comfortable singing the the lyrics because it was kind of like a elvis pelvis porno vocal thing where i talk about like pornos and and elvis being in pornos and shaking his pelvis till dawn kind of thing so i was i guess back I, i would totally do it now though i think that would be we could crush that song now yeah, that's why when you said that, I'm like, wait a minute, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, with the, the, if you were Elvis, you'd work on your pelvis till dawn. That, you know, I, I think that could go over well now. You know? I think it would be a <laughs> lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, went, I, I came across that track, like, last week, and I listened to the whole thing. I'm like, oh, man, you know, why aren't we playing this fucking song? This is a really cool old nugget that... If if Umphreys arranged it for Umphreys, it would it would probably turn into a whole another organism, you know. Oh, one hundred percent, no doubt. So talk about we'll go before ABT. So talk about Bad Hair Tuesday, and talk about Nate. In that yeah, point. yeah, Nate Chef's a great friend from high school. So he was uh, almost two years behind me when when I think we met he was a freshman and I was a junior and he was just this gifted, uh, just Pearl jam Nirvana loving grunge kid, you know, from, from middle of nowhere, Michigan. And, and he was very gifted. He could write lyrics that were super soulful and really, um, just connective tissue for lyrics. He just had like this natural innate sense to write what he felt. And, and that's really hard to do and not be calculated about it. So he had a natural poetic justice. I, I always thought that. And also he loved rocking out and he loved being soft. So he had dynamics. So all of a sudden I really drifted towards Nate and go, I mean, you know, I'm going to nurture this guy. <clears throat> and it started that long ago in, in high school. And by the time I was a senior and he, he was what sophomore, we, were, we started playing uh, like parties, you know, like high school parties, people would have us over in their garage and we'd get our buddies together uh, from the high school who could, you know, string along musically, you know, and we'd do Pearl Jam covers, Pink Floyd, R.E.M., you know, uh, Nirvana, whatever, Stone Temple Pilots. That was kind of the era. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of broke ties for a bit after we I graduated and I kind of just started feeling the curb, you know? 
I went to college. I went to Southwestern Michigan, got a free ride on a jazz scholarship. So it was local. So I started going there and working, you know, trying to pay the bills. And then um, got spearheaded for the country act during this time, Avalanche. Okay, so all that time went by. And then at the end of Avalanche, we formed Bad Hair Tuesday. Okay, so the thing with Avalanche is we had a recording facility at, at, our, at where we, our headquarters was. Okay, beautiful recording facility. And during the nighttime, I would have Nate come over because he had this batch of tunes that was just great. And him and I would just start working on Potpourri, that, that old CD that him and I put out in like 97, I believe. I mean, it's super rare. So I, I should just like make it available for people to listen to because it's really good. Because we had, a, we had a, a full console like this and a tape machine. So I knew this was my first um, crash course in like producing an actual record. You know, so that was kind of cool in itself. And it just him and I did the whole thing and uh, put that CD out and, and, you know, nothing was really happening. And this is when Crojo came into my picture. OK, so the first culmination of Alibaba's Tahini was actually Crojo, Nate Chefstick and I. And that's when we started writing songs and starting to do. I mean, I've got a bunch of old rehearsals of us together and we actually played a couple shows. So Bad Hair Tuesday actually clocked in a couple of shows as a three piece, you know, way, way back. Wow. So that's kind of like the, the, the history lesson of where Nate Chefsit comes in and it crosses over into to Bad Hair Tuesday. Carl came in the mix. OK, because we were slowly becoming Bad Hair Tuesday and we needed a bass player. Crojo knew Carl from South Bend. He was this crazy kid from uh outside of you know chicago i think carl was from where was he from schaumburg or something like that okay and he was so hippied out carl was like super hippie was like <laughs> would douse himself in patchouli and like eat raw garlic that was that was carl carl's thing was like and he would ride his bike from south bend up to niles michigan with his back base on his back Right in the dead of summer for the first rehearsals at the studio. And he came in, he came in reeking like a yin and yang of patchouli and garlic. Oh, geez. And just, and, and this is the first time I met him. And Koja's like, this is Carl, Carl, this is Nate, Jake. And we we're like, holy shit, Carl. Right. And then Carl was such an entity at this time. He had so much to say. And he was also on a jazz perspective. Once he started playing with this, this kind of scared Nate. Nate was like more of a traditionalist rocker, grunge guy. He wasn't really feeling it, but but us three were feeling it. Crojo, um, um, Carl, and I. So so by this time, Nate kind of moved out of the picture a little bit. He just wasn't feeling it. Okay, and it's it made sense. And this is when Ali Baba's team we changed our name. And we started writing these jazz rock progressive songs together. We were like, let's use Frank Zappa, Thelonious Monk, uh, Stravinsky, and heavy metal, and country. And that's that's when that concept of, of trying to put everything into one basket as a three-piece was kind of our, our, our ideology. 
at that time. So that's really the, the, the short version of what happened, you know. Do you remember when your first show was? Mickey's Pub, because that was like the first legit room that anyone could play at because we knew Ralphie, you know. It was like Ralph, Ralphie goes so far back as far as uh, Ralph Gillis, mm-hmm. his name. Big Ralph. And he was the bartender and he just loved us, man. He would uh, make sure we got all the door money and he'd feed us all the food that we wanted and give us all the, the beer that we, we could handle, all the stout. And that just made it created an atmosphere for the uh, musicians that played there at Mickey's. It was a real special scene. Like, you know, when every great band always had like that speakeasy that they always went to. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was the room that. Humphreys and Tahini cut their teeth and then all their buddies in the musical scene around South Bend did also at the same time. So, man, in the late 90s, Mickey's was like our CBGBs of South Bend. It was it, anyone tell you about those days, they'd be like, dude, that was the coolest scene ever. And that's really the gasoline that got um, us going as bands. It was like because we needed a place to hang and we needed a place to play. And and, you know, I could walk out of there on a weekend and we had made 900, you know, like maybe a thousand bucks for the weekend. We'd split it up between the three of us and our sound guy, Matt Withers, you know, shout out to Matt Withers. It's so lucky that you guys had a place like that, especially with what Crojo said, kind of South Bend was like in the nineties, it wasn't really, you know, it's had some revitalization but it wasn't the city that it is now so yeah for sure it, but then again it was like there was a more of a safe haven um environment like you felt more likely to to eat a handful of mushrooms and drink a pitcher of stout and feel feel really cool about it watching your favorite local band it was just kind of a different time yeah know? yeah just overall for sure so talk about uh liquid magazines battle of the bands Oh, wow. That was nuts. Okay, so we get, you know, sort of this invite to uh, battle it out because it's like it was sort of we we were dithered down to like the top six or whatever. And then all of us battle it out at the body shop in Elkhart. Right. It was at the body shop. We're at the body shop. I remember the radio commercials of that place. Uh, you know, it's like where Great White or Slaughter or Rat or Winger would play when they came through. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So we were, we were a hippie band. And then we're walking into this total rock club and all the bands that we're playing against are like Deftones or like they sounded like Trickster or something. <laughs> Remember Trickster? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so they're like, who the fuck are these hippie young weirdos almost we just got the, you know all the girlfriends are like ew you know <laughs> the other, other bands you know so we come in and and we're like second to last so all, we like wait all day for this bands the stupid bands to play their stuff and then uh we do our thing and we just kill it we just slay this show because the thing is is if you're a mu- musician watching a bunch of shit you want to get through like all these other bands you're just like almost like a fighter like ramping up for a fight you know like pacing the room like a tiger 
and we just walked up there and slayed it. And, and the judges were like, you know, we got 10 out of 10. And there was one band that was really good. And they got like 9.5. And everyone was like, no way. There's no way. I, I demand a recount. You know, so that was uh, the folklore of that day. And we walked out as proud rock and roll hippies, <laughs> you know. Carl with his patchouli smelling self. Oh, yeah. He, it's like the dick budkiss syndrome where he would eat a bunch of garlic before he'd be on the front line at, with the Chicago Bears and breathe into Green Bay's face, you know. <laughs> There's a little bit of that element. Hi! <laughs> yeah. For sure. So tell me about Brian Williams. So he was the, the automatic first manager for Tahini. You know, it just kind of automatically happened. He was a good buddy and he was like, let me do this for you. So in this same very room was the, is the original Boondocks Alibaba's Tahini headquarters office where we had the, you know, the first computer in here back in the day. And this is where we basically, he did all of his networking was right here. So <clears throat> he, he would come here often and try to book shows. You know, he's calling but where we want to start for routing, because he's like, we got to get you guys on the road. You guys have a good two hours worth of music that you can get through. Let's let's take this on the road and started to book a whole East Coast tour, you know, starting in Buffalo, New York, and then Rochester, New York, and then Fredonia, New York, and then Syracuse, and then uh, Ithaca, and then, um, you know, go more east, right? And then wrap around, I think we did about a month or so out on the road, camping out, doing little festivals here and there, uh, telling the festival promoter that, hey, can we stay on the premises and can we collect all the beer cans uh, after the festival so we can get gas money and beer money? He's like, yeah, sure. And then we'd end up staying there for like five days, you know, having fun in the woods, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. But it was a memorable tour because we were totally living on the road like the way you would as a real vagabond gypsy you know mm -hmm. staying in camping grounds eating carl's cooking with the sriracha for the first time extra garlic so we were just reeking deacons on the road you know playing pizza parlors you know stuff like that yeah. just to like get enough money to to go to the next town and then meeting all these string of people along the way where a few of them would follow us from town to town you know, feed us illicit drugs. <laughs> That's too funny. I really love the connection to Buffalo. I was like blown away of all the places for you guys to kind of cut teeth. It was up here. Yeah, at Broadway Joe's. Yeah, it, that is 20 minutes from my house. Right? That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> right down the street from the Anchor Bar, right? Like where the Buffalo Wings started, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I, remember, I remember when we pulled into Broadway Joe's, we were like, we asked the local, where's, where's the anchor? He's like, right down there. And then we walked. As soon as we parked the van, we were like, we got to go get the real thing. So we go down there and, and get some wings, you know, go back, set up. The cool thing is we played Broadway Joe's twice on that tour. Uh, it was one of our first shows. And then when we were well-seasoned, we came right back home and played it again. Nice. And I have the master tapes or the original cassette tapes, the board tapes from that whole tour. So there's like a whole project in itself is, is I recorded every show on that tour, you know, wow. and some recordings are better than others. But the thing is, is I ended up, we ended up getting all that 
that audio footage from that whole tour and I have them. I have the cassette tapes somewhere. <laughs> nice. Nice. Except for the Sodas Point show, right? We don't have that because Brian Williams <laughs> broke it. He's like, the band is not ready for the, this or the, the world is not ready for this music. And he was wasted and broke the tape with his hands and strewn it all over the, that was almost the end of it right there. That was awesome. Carl was like, you motherfucker. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine like, oh yeah. my God. So how was the response then? So you, st you start the tour in Buffalo and you do all these shows and come back to Buffalo. Was there more of a response? Was the audience bigger? There was, man. It was amazing last show of the tour. It was the best show of the tour also because, you know, when you're going home and after you just went through like the real tour of duty, rock and roll style, um, that last show of tour is always great, you know? And it was, it was pretty packed. I remember it being like a really good show. That's awesome. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about Herbie One. Oh, man. So we were stuck in Rochester for a while. We couldn't get a gig. We just couldn't find a gig. And Herbie One was, a, was the upstate New York promoter at the time, like musical promoter. He would just, he was dealing with Disco Biscuits, uh, uh, Ominous Sea Pods. Um, you know, uh, 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 Trout. There was all those kick-ass upstate uh, uh, state New New York bands who were really good, you know. So he was kind of one of the first guys in that scene that had a magazine. What was the name of the magazine? I think it was Upstate Live. That might have been it. I think it was it. Because I and vaguely remember it being around because I was like a teenager at that time. Yeah. So I kind of like yeah. vaguely remember it kicking around. So he saw us, he came out and saw us and he was like blown away. He was like, you can come stay at our house. He had this big, uh, you know, house in town at Ro in Rochester. And and we stayed there for a week. I remember we couldn't get a show. We were just like on the couch going stir crazy, right? But then what's cool is he had all the bands that were local. So he had all, all the CDs from all the bands that were local. So I would be so bored out of my mind. I'd just like listen to all these random bands that were that were local to get an idea of what was happening in the music scene at that time in 1997 because i had no idea kind of what we were doing we were just like i guess we're a jam band that's i, I wasn't necessarily trying to go for that when we right. were designing the sound we just kind of ended up in the lap of of the jam band community so it, it worked out great so I got really familiar with what was going on at the time at Herbie's house when we were staying there. And he was a very gracious host, man, to let us stay there for a week. You know, it felt like 1972, you know, yeah. if you were a touring band. You know, it's like, oh, man, this guy's letting us crash on the couch for a week. So, so uh, much love to Herbie. For sure. And a great opportunity for you to get exposed to some other music. Yeah. Because I think it was, maybe it was Brian, I've had so many conversations this week, I believe it was Brian who mentioned that the thing about the jam bands and how like he didn't really listen to that music and so that it was great to have that opportunity to be exposed to, you know, maybe more Mo or other yeah. things that you guys weren't really classifying yourselves as, so. Yeah, well like say for instance, the No Doy came out right around that time. And that was just like the record, right? No Doy from Mo with mm -hmm. the uh, the big fat head on the cover. <laughs> For sure. Um, 
but that that particular record really kicked my ass i love the sound of that record as opposed like fish was great but i really found something special in the sound of that record and it was a little more uh ballsy a little bit more rock and roll mm-hmm. and and i just i just like that about mo and i was like okay so it's cool to like play distortion in a jam band you know it was like so i kind of ran with that even further let's use a little bit more metallica a little bit more nine inch nails a little bit more ministry you know, with the with the ideology of a jam band sound, so that was kind of an ace of, ace up the sleeve, was to go where the normal jam band wasn't going. I that's that's what led more into that Umphrey sound too, was to be a little bit more possible with the uh, fringes of of the genre. That it didn't have to be kind of what the original idea of when you hear the word jam band. Yeah, it was more homogenized. For sure. For sure. So talk about Carl leaving the band. Yeah, it was kind of like, you know, uh, it's the classic Lennon Yoko thing when it when that happens to a band and no, no. And it's like, I don't take any of that sourly. You know, it's it's like time has passed and it's like we've almost we're in a better position now because it happened. All of us, you know, it's like, who knows, we could have tried it for another year as tahini and said man we can't do this who knows right and then i, I would have never been in umphreys and you know how the destiny works yeah and um so i it kind of like at this point carl left and i was really down you know i'd lost a girlfriend that i'd been around for a while a lot was happening i i kind of was just living here at the studio you know kind of figuring out what i was going to do I was working a lot. I was drywalling big houses in, in the uh, subdivisions of South Bend, you know, beating my hands up, working 10 hours a day. Starting to lose interest in music altogether because I could make pretty good money in the construction industry. Uh, at this time is when Humphreys moved to Chicago on Henderson Street. They got the band house. And then about this time, Bales gave me that that classic phone call and said, Hey, we've been thinking about, we want you know, we want you to join the band and you can bring over some awesome Alibaba's Tahini songs and we can make a bigger catalog with what we already have. And he goes, I'll send you some CDs in the mail, CDs in the mail. Um, you know, and it had like some early performances of, of Umphreys. He goes, try to find your voice inside of these live performances. So I would just sit back for a couple weeks you know, try to figure out all things Ninja, you know, Jablutencott, um, Slacker, you know, uh, 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 Divisions, you know, trying to find my voice inside of those songs. And then all of a sudden it was time to actually play a gig. That was a, a September 8th at the State Theater in South Bend, Indiana. So that's kind of like when it all when it all started, you know. Yeah. And it's kind of full circle because Alibaba's played at the State Theater and had Umphreys open for them. So it was kind of like, a, you know, weird yeah, we were a good full bu- circle thing. Yeah. Yeah. And the great thing is we were buddies in different bands and we just we were friends and it wasn't a competitive nature between any one of us. We were like we'd party together after the shows. Um, I would specifically go out and see. Umphreys just to hang out and then all of a sudden I'd be on stage you know 
they would come out and see tahini um it was a special it was a special time yeah, uh, Crojo sent me a lot of pictures, and there were a few in there where you guys were playing, and the Bayless would be up there, and you know, so just inter intermingling and and building that relationship. Yep, and that's what really naturally led to, because uh, Umphrey's always had a real appreciation for Alibaba's tahini. They were always at our shows, hooting and hollering and going, you know, fuck yeah. You know, I got old tapes of like Ryan and Miro and, and whoever else was in the front row. And they're just like, after, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like pretty cool to hear that two, two years before I joined the band. So there was like an automatic appreciation. I was blown away how good those guys in Umphreys was when I go see him. I'm like, man, those guys are really something. So that automatically led to the, the elements colliding you know yeah the nice little seamless move over so let's go back a little bit and talk about bringing khalil in and how your sound changed when you brought him in and of course losing carl as the songwriter that he was right yeah so we were left without you know a main songwriter bass player so Crojo's always a very communal guy. He knows what's kind of, he's got his pulse, his finger on the scene. And was good buddies with Khalil. I think they worked together at Lula's Coffee Shop. That's where I met my wife. It's like very, very small world. Um, and Khalil was just this cerebral Salvador Dali type artist of music. He was like more tortoise and um, cluster and ambient and textualized and unpopped culture as you could possibly get. And that's, and I was like, okay, this is cool. Like he's, he's like more like a sitar player that plays bass or something, mm -hmm. you know? And he always sat down when he played because he had all of his pedals. So he'd create loops and he had this wah-wah thing too, where he just like, wow these really wicked like growls with his bass and his style was like any other bass player i'd ever played with i mean a fabulous multi-instrumentalist too he can play the drums like like a motherfucker you know and the guitar and a cello and a flute so he's like him and i were were on the same wavelength as far as like possibilities so he was the natural selection to to do this tahini thing mach two so it wasn't going to be like the old tahini. It was going to be like a new version of it. So, so that was like a cool thing to go through to make it work all over again. And, and oh, Khalil is just a great guy, you know, great guy. Yeah. I've heard really, really good things about him. Um, so Brian talked about rock stars and lawnmowers being a really memorable session for him. Crojo kind of shared those sediments. So I would love to hear, your experience of those sessions and also from my understanding of the timeline Bonnaroo 2004 for Umphreys happened like right before that session and yeah. that's like a pretty iconic Umphreys show so there must have been a lot of creative stuff going on like for you at that time I mean these two big things yeah well around that time I just moved out of this area to Chicago 
So this this was like a big jump for me being like a country boy out here in the middle of nowhere, Michigan. You know, moving into the big city so I can make it easier for myself when I'm playing with the band with Umphreys. So <clears throat> at this time, um, Crojo and, and Carl were just pressing me, man. We got to do a record. Got to do a record. And Carl was like, I live down at this at this beautiful little woodland home on the side of a of a mountain in North Carolina, with with our but with his buddy Jimbo, who's like a snake oil doctor, <laughs> right? Uh, super cool, like and a blues aficionado. Um, so I go, okay, I got a window of time. I can actually make this work. And Brian Williams was like, let's do this. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing my Umphreys thing. And those guys are like, we got to get Jake to like, he's got a window of time. Let's see if we can make this happen. Cause he's got the recording gear also. So I literally did the mobile recording unit type ideology where I stuffed the, uh, mixing console in the back of the, the car put all the digital recorders. We had a Lesis uh, ADATs back then, which were the VHS digital recorders, like DAT machine, but for, for multi-tracking. Um, took down all of my effects units, a couple amplifiers, some compressors, some limiters, some preamps, um, a small microphone collection, Crojo's drums, the Rickenbacker bass, a couple guitars, acoustic guitar. That's all we had, okay? So we loaded just what we needed to be able to, to pull off like tracking the album as, as, as we see it. So we get down there, we start grilling through songs, uh, uh, going through old tunes like Carnival Chronicles. Uh, Carl had a bunch of new songs like Poster Pros. Um, I added a couple songs, For Your Angels, Liquid. Liquid eventually became an Humphrey song. Um, and just the vibe there was great because it was like, the middle of nowhere in a small little shack, way smaller than my studio here. And we just lived in this, in this shack with all this gear set up at all times. Whenever we felt it, we just hit record. And eventually we got enough material to, to make a record. So we got, we grabbed all those tracks. I had Carl lay all of his vocals there. After we got the tracks done, we, we overdubbed the vocals later. Um, we did everything there. I took the tapes home to Chicago, um, spent some time overdubbing guitars, making stuff sound a little bit more fresh because you have the, the, the rough draft of what you're using, the rhythm section, okay? Drums, bass, guitar, vocals. And then I take the tapes back to Chicago in my basement, start to add guitar layers, uh, so maybe some percussion, maybe a keyboard here, maybe some vocal harmonies little stuff and then mix it there in the basement make a cd of it and then make a thousand of them so that's it that was the process of that that's cool and i have one i've been able to to get every abt cd jimmy was nice enough to send me two so Not, I yeah have, the hard to find one for sure yeah. so i have a whole collection now <laughs> awesome awesome pretty happy about that so what would you say personally is your favorite abt album I mean, the newest one seems to culminate the most um, mature artistic statement. Um, I think living rooms are, I mean, it's hard to say, uh, you know. Um, I really like 
limbo boots for the earlier one okay because it's it's like all four track recordings like cassette four tracks so it's kind of like a lo-fi masterpiece in a weird way okay because it's really hard to make anything sound good on a four track cassette machine so i would try to do that and then we did some of that at mike thompson's studio called flintoria studio good buddy of mine mike thompson so you know limbo boots living rooms really special and and bottom bottom feeders bottom feeders is just a great album yeah so talk a little bit about that session then since we're talking about bottom feeders so talk yeah. a little bit about that so carl, carl had a batch of tunes batch of like folky type tunes again it's where he brings me these great songs and how, how are we going to turn them into like a record like a statement to where they all don't sound the same because that's not what we do we want them to all sound kind of different that's what that's what we do is alibaba's tahini i remember when it came time to track here at boondock it was like sub-zero like january and we were just holed up in this little room and, and i think that's when you get some of the best performances is when uh you know you're against the weather a little bit yeah so that kind of brought the sessions together and we were just tracking we spent a good five six days just again getting the rhythm tracks so then i can add stuff later and sweeten things up and then carl would do his vocals uh in north carolina get everything sweet and then uh greg majors greg majors who does a lot of the umphreys mcgee production for for our records uh actually mixed the record with me and so it was nice to have him involved because he really knows pro tools really well i'm kind of old school using a little bit more of an analog ideology so to have like a pro tools master like uh greg majors in there really uh sealed the deal and made that a cohesive project for sure for sure so talk about the niles 2010 abt show yeah oh man that was crazy um it's cool to come home and and play your hometown outside <clears throat> under an open air sort of situation and you know all your relatives are there and your mom and dad's there and all your a lot of high school buddies that you hadn't seen for 15 years are there so there's something special to bring it all home and play downtown miles michigan because because it's like i i appreciate being from a small town and kind of what it's done for my uh artistic outlook it's like my thought process can slow down enough to create art and i think that being from a small town and not with the traffic zooming by you at a million miles an hour and you know having to worry about all those sort of things it, it opens up that artistic uh vortex a little bit more so that has a lot to do with why playing downtown felt nice, you know, because I love where the river is. The river that flows north, St. Joe River, is right next to the stage where we play there. So you could almost look over and see the river flowing north, which is a rarity because there's only like three or four rivers in the world that flow north. That's cool. You know, that's cool. And a lot of people were there. I mean, you had Cleo yeah, Kane and, and yeah. then then you had Justin at that point was doing keys with you guys. And yeah. Brett Paget Pagets was there. And yeah. I mean, so that had to be such a fun night. Yeah, it's like what, what, 
luckily we had cell phones, right? We were like, hey, we're going to be downtown. <laughs> have to like send out uh, uh, an actual mail. Have to like stamp it to, to all my friends. Hey, we're playing downtown. Send the carrier pigeon out. <laughs> yeah. Letter attached much. to their leg. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Sometimes I feel like that when I'm trying to explain to my children what it was like when I was there. My my daughter is ten, and so when I tried to like explain to her, I'm like, but you you don't understand though. When I was your age, none of this existed. <laughs> right exactly and then i feel like we're that old like we had to send the bird out i'm like no it's not that bad i'm not that ancient (laughs) yeah it was like the page the pager days you know when everyone had a pager attached to their belt buckle definitely so talk about summer camp 2011 i think man the funny thing about summer camp is they all blur together at least i bet bet for you yeah but but, but for the for the tv show is great because all of a sudden I could bring Alibaba's tahini into kind of the Umphrey's world a little bit. So that was kind of a cool opportunity to, uh, you know, to cut the teeth with my old band at a real festival, you know, and Carl was hilarious that day. He had like a full bottle of tequila on stage, like knocked it over and spilled all over the place. It was just reckless. (laughs) Hot as ball, hot as balls that day too. I remember. Yeah, that's what I've heard. But it, I feel the same way. And now with like bottom feeders coming out, it's great because it's opening it up to Umphrey's fans that maybe, first of all, don't even know this part of your history, right? Or know about ABT, but just have never heard them or had any experience. So it's great that you're able to make music and like educate people on this band that has been around forever. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a part of the, the real fabric of Umphrey's McGee. Because the thing is, is you can't deny the friendship that we had prior to me joining the band. There was a real camaraderie there and it just naturally spilt over. We were all from the same town. So it's like we were all drinking the same water yeah. in, in the bigger picture. Yeah, for sure. So talk about the 2017 Vegetable Buddy show. My understanding is it wasn't really ABT, but it was built that way. Yeah. 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 So it was, it was kind of a collective of friends, but it's better to call it ABT's getting back together because it really was, uh, you know, Khalil, uh, Krojo and I, which was like the last, you know, Mach 2, we'd call that Mach 2 version. And there's yeah. a Mach 3. And then this Vegetable Buddies would be the Mach 4 version of Alibaba's Tahini. So it's almost like, Alibaba's Tahini was like the deep purple of the jam band scene, you know, because there's like deep purple one, two, three, four, and five. Uh, mock, mocks. <laughs> <laughs> Mocky mocks. But, uh, um, you know, all the, the heavier hitting players of South Bend kind of showed up to Vegetable Buddies. And Vegetable Buddies, by the way, is a great club. It's like the, the Mickey's Pub of... Uh, of now in South Bay. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Harris is, is, is our good friend from, he goes way back. Got to give a big shout out to Jeff Harris and vegetable buddies. So that we, we ripped a show at vegetable buddies and it was like an amazing performance. It was almost a flawless performance. I couldn't believe how well that show came off. Cause we, we only rehearsed once. Okay, we rehearsed for like two hours as everyone kind of got the forms of the songs. Okay, let's play the show. And it felt like we've been playing for 10 years. 
because if you go back to that particular show, it's pretty rocking. It's pretty on. I really and like up, that up, show. I listen to it a lot. Yeah, like the They Love Each Other on there is just like just one of the best performances I've ever done of that song, you know, and everyone's feeling it just in the pocket. Really proud of everyone on that particular performance. Yeah, that's such a oh, I, that's my favorite dead tune anyway. So, yeah. And, and that was also a benefit for a good buddy. So so it's like uh, meant, meant a lot that particular. For a good cause, for sure. So it, it meant a little bit more. Exactly. Yeah. So when I was talking to Brian, he had his copy of Professor Wormbog by Mercer Mayer. And he talked about how you guys had talked about that book. And yeah, you had a was copy my, when you were a kid. Oh, my gosh. That was my favorite book as a child because of how big it was. And just it was the best illustrated book um, I'd ever come across as a kid. I was so into books, but then things that were big and just like a record cover. It felt more like a like the way the art would be on an album to me. And the story was really cool. But man, the art, I could just stare at each page for just, you know, 10 minutes at a time. Mm-hmm. And I, so that had a weird influence on me later. And just I always loved that Wormbog, Professor Wormbog. And I was like, I wonder if, if I name a song that or rename a song that people would catch on, you know. <laughs> It took a little bit. Some people did. I have a copy of that book. And when I like started becoming an Umphreys fan and getting into the music, I was like, no way. And then yeah, I found out it was. And I'm like, that's really cool. <laughs> what a cool association. Yeah. The weird thing about that book is that those illustrations are like etched into my brain matter. So it's like, you know, like when you had a book when you were a child, could have been a Dr. Seuss book or something, but <clears throat> you could instantly reference. It's like those pictures are sort of like, uh, they're just in like in, br- sort of t- burned in your brain almost yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. for sure so when you play that song do you envision those characters in that story no no, no I, i'm too focused on like the task at hand of the music but at the time when it came to, to name something yeah. or to tag something because we always have a hard time coming up with names of songs you know i think that's even sometimes harder than writing the song is to come up with like a decent name that's that's like googleable right that's like kabump if you probably went ka-bump it would be it would algorithm you write to us and the song right you know what I mean? right so, so so remember that kids make sure you're uh <laughs> what you name things is highly algorithmable <laughs> right working any any time now that you've been in Umphreys and still doing ABT music so because they're two different animals what does going back and writing or working with Carl and ABT and and Steve do for you musically that working with Bayless and the guys in Umphreys doesn't satisfy yeah a good a good analogy of that would be your favorite food is pizza, but you know what? It's really nice to try some clam chowder occasionally. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's like, you know, there's people that eat pizza every day and that's like all they eat. So imagine thinking of, think of like art as being kind of like that. It's like, I totally appreciate pizza and love it every day in my life, but it's nice to taste clam chowder occasionally. So I think that's really like if you would look at, say, the needs of like that artistic um, 
appetite. Um, it's, it's kind of in that it's like really nice to tread other pastures, but then you're completely dedicated to, uh, your, your, your main God, you know, right. Which is, which is, I work for Humphreys McGee. I'm the CEO of the company. You know, it's like, that's my number one job, but just like everyone else in, uh, Humphreys, it's, it's like Ryan Stasek is, is, is chewing on you know, doom flamingo gum because he wants a different flavor in his mouth. Um, Chris is, is, is like, man, I haven't had uh, lobster and steak in a while. So I'm going to play with kick the cat a little bit, you know? So I like to think of it a little more literal as far as why we stray away from the path. It's because it's, it's healthy to taste other environments again. Yeah. For sure. And it's good because it, you don't get sick of the same thing, like having the same thing every day, you don't get sick of it. And it kind of cleanses your palate in a way too. Like you get like a different taste of something and you come back and you appreciate the taste of that more. Yeah, exactly. You got to have a little acidity in your diet. (laughs) For sure. For sure. Or a little bit of garlic in Carl's. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) Sriracha. So that's everything I have for this week of the show. Thank you again to Jake for taking the time to chat. It was such a pleasure. There are a bunch of links in the show notes for anything I may have referenced, including where you can find my chats with the other guys in ABT, as well as where you can give a listen to their music on Nugs, Spotify, archive and where you can find some videos on YouTube that 2010 Niles show um, that Jake and I talked about there's definitely a video of that so you're definitely going to enjoy it so you're welcome (laughs) also in the show notes you'll find links for where you can binge on other past episodes book a conversation and be a guest here on the podcast Snag some merch and past issues of Conduit from the official DATC store on Etsy. Get yourself a subscription to Conduit Magazine and so much more. So make sure you check all of that out. And make sure you're giving Dropped Among This Crowd and Conduit Magazine a follow on social media so you don't miss the first part of this rad and stacked ABT issue when it drops this coming Friday, April 30th. Thank you again so much for joining me. I'll see you around these parts next week. Mad love.